Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today on the show, I have Martin McMillan, who is the founder and CEO of Poland VC, a financing company that provides flexible credit facilities for mobile game developers who are doing user acquisition. With Martin, we talk about the evolution of UA funding in mobile games, how debt financing is becoming the norm for marketing, and we hear Martin's views on the boom of the games industry and how this is affecting everything. But before we go to this interesting discussion, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. All right, we're live. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joachim. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. It's going to be interesting to talk about the topic. I, I'm like a big fan of talking about M&A, stuff that's going, going on in the industry. Uh, I think like there's probably no end in sight to this sort of boom that the game industry is having, especially now that like we're not going to be seeing any kind of like closure to the pandemic anytime soon, or, or at least it's going to be a slow ramp down back from like what what we've seen so yeah it's an interesting time for the industry for sure yeah for sure and maybe we um, talk a little bit about some of the some of the analysis we did on some some of the research recently so it, it kind of came from a hunch really um so we uh, it's from a couple of conversations with a couple of the MA guys that they were saying basically all the deal flow they were working on was from was from self-published studios so what we did is we went looking for a source of uh, of data where we could uh, we, we had this hunch that um, that it was going to be borne out in all the M and A data in terms of you know what the uh, what what the stats were what type of studios were being acquired which is what we really wanted to kind of drill into um, so we uh, we came across the uh, the data that the guys at Invest Game have um, have worked on and we did some of our own analysis um around what sort of studios were being acquired and the results were, were, were kind of it kind of surprised us to be honest um and and really the headline was that so we analyzed the data um of transactions above 100 million excluding chinese studios and acquirers um and we wanted to know what was the primary business model of each of the studios that was being acquired and the numbers came out it was 83 percent of um uh, around, uh, let me get the number right, it was around um, 6.73 billion of transactions that had happened, 22 transactions. 83% um, of them uh, were ac acquisitions of studios whose primary business model was to self-publish their own games. 15% was third-party publishers themselves. And just 2%, um, there was just one transaction where a studio whose route to market was via third-party publishers. Um, so we thought this was, you know, it kind of, kind of confirmed a hunch that we were thinking about, and we just thought it... Uh, 
it um, sends sends quite a strong signal to, um, to 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 founders in terms of um, what sort of studios are being acquired, and then hopefully feeds into some of the thinking about the fundraising process and and um, and you know ultimately if you're looking to build something that's valuable valuable enough to be sold, um, then I think this is a, a pretty strong steer from the data kind of really early on. Mm, nice, it's interesting. I, I I've been uh, working a lot with the invest game fellows and i think the the industry like we're, we're at that stage where we can sort of like have a lot more data and understand what's going on in the industry and and, and also think about the models and i think it helps the, the the fundraising all that schemes like can you talk more about what kind of characteristics you actually found out in the research um, yeah, it was, it was really just just bucketing them in terms of the, the studios that were being acquired. So that like the self publishing seemed to be really strong. And and again, anecdotally from talking to talking to people, talking to some of the acquirers, talking to some of the venture funds, and so on, um, it seemed to be that uh, what the acquirers are interested in in acquiring is really like you know complete businesses. So rather than game developers, it's game businesses. Um, and Obviously, in order to do that, it's it's tough because you have to build out a much wider range of skill sets, and the and the, the the table stakes are higher, right? So rather than just being great at making games, you have to be great at user acquisition. You have to be great at building, you know, teams and cultures and licensing IPs and all the rest of it. But essentially, when when acquirers and and this is again borne out from the data, when acquirers are looking to um, acquire a studio, they're looking to acquire kind of I guess what I would think of as complete businesses rather than incomplete so you're buying the you know you're buying the whole business kit and caboodle um as opposed to just buying a effectively a development capability which is in a way kind of um relied on someone else to do a lot of the uh a lot of the the the, the value creation in terms of um how, how revenues are made mm. like, do, do you think like the founders of these studios that are sort of like booming right now coming up uh recently should they focus more on the the self-publishing model early on have you have has there been backing on that data what do you think well <clears throat> look, i think it's horses for courses i think i think what this is telling people is like early on when they're trying to figure out what kind of studio they want to be and this you know there, there's a whole there's a whole spectrum right so there are some people that are uh that are fantastic at making games and the uh you know very happy to to work with publishers maybe to have some of the game funded if that if that really still happens anymore but you know on, on handling some of the commercial aspects and, and so on they just want to keep you know really in the lane of what they're really good at um but you know then they should kind of also recognize that the idea of doing that is probably not going to get them some you know they're probably not going to get the knock on the door and one of the big acquirers is going to come along and and um, and pay a lot of money from them which is okay because you can make a fantastic living you know working with uh, you know doing what you enjoy and, and having a route to market working with some publishers and there's some great publishers out there who you know have all sorts of kind of tools and and um uh, user acquisition know-how etc um but i think if you're you know if you're starting your studio and you know, maybe this is uh, maybe this is first time founders. Maybe it's kind of second time founders. When you're looking, when you're thinking about who you want to be and what you want to be remembered for, then you know, feeding into that process, um, you know, if you're looking to build something that's ultimately of enough value for someone to acquire, then you need to make some of these decisions early on about you know self-publishing and also you know just rewinding the fact that if you raise venture capital for your for your business, ultimately the VC is going to want to look. Um, for a liquidity event through either a through either a trade sale or an IPO, 
So you need to have something, you need to be aiming to build something that is saleable um, if you're going to raise venture money as well. So I think it's about, you know, it's about planning, it's about aspirations, and it's about setting the expectation gradient for what sort of studio you want to be, and then and then try and go uh, along that path to to achieve it. Mm. Those pre-seed stage companies that I'm, I've been spending time with looking at as, as an angel investor, and like oftentimes, like the studios are proving their ropes through shipping a game, like having soft launch metrics and, and, and proving it that way. And then afterwards scaling sort of like you go for, to seed level to series A. And, and it, at that stage, the company starts growing and, and you get that proper UAT. But do you think it like the data supports that as a valid model? Well, I think, I think the, 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 it, there's always a gray area, right? And it's um, it's interesting. Like one of the things we've seen recently as a company, you know, providing, and we provide uh, and provide debt capital to, to, to f- primarily finance user acquisition. Mm. So one of, the, one of the things we've seen is a trend of people coming to us and say, hey, look, you know, I've published, you know, one or two titles through a publisher. I've learned, you know, I've learned the ropes and now I want to self-publish my next title. So this is, um, you know, we did at the end of last year, beginning of this year, we did a great um, um, kind of mid-core um, studio who had had uh, tremendous success ha- having having a publisher uh, publish their, their first kind of major game. And they came to us and said, look, we want to, you know, we figured out basically the ropes we think, and we want to, we want to work with you guys to self-publish our next title, which is a combination of taking UA in-house and then looking for uh, an external source of capital to fund the UA, which is, you know, uh, yeah, I'm sure this will be disputed, but like it, from a developer point of view, it seems to be a large part of what they perceive the publisher's value to be. And the other one is <clears throat> is in hyper casual as well. So we've, we've had and we've worked or we are working and have worked with a number of people who've had like yeah, tremendous success working with big publishers who have had tens. You know, one of them works with we've done over a hundred million downloads, and the sentiment from these guys is like. Look, we did this and we had some tremendous success, but now we want to we want to take some of the learnings and also some of the money we made from this and we want to publish our own titles because I think there's a perception of, you know, the the the, the two key things that um where the publishers were adding value and I think this is true particularly in the hyper casual space. Um obviously there's user acquisition expertise, um but as that becomes more and more algorithmic and programmatic People can, you know, they, they believe do a do a, a pretty good, maybe not as good a job, but um, pretty close to it. Um, and then also in terms of seeking external capital um, for uh, for user acquisition. So, you know, we've seen, um, you know, if you've got very very short break even periods, then you can recycle your money super quickly. So normally the the, the accepted thinking of in, in hyper casual is if you wanted to spend like fifty thousand bucks a day on UA. You know, you could need up to you know three million bucks or whatever or more to to spend that money consistently, because you're waiting for the um, you know for the ad networks to pay out before you can reinvest the money, and actually then um, working with a, a a company that can unlock your um, your revenues really quickly and allow you to reinvest it, you may be able to do that on a on a budget you know, less than a tenth of the size and yeah. do it for yourself. So. It's just, you know, I, I think it, it, it's just about its choices. It's figuring out who you want to be, what you want to be remembered for, mm. and then setting yourself off on that, on that trajectory. Yeah, I, I think the, the whole debt financing thing that uh, came into sort of like the limelight with, with Metacore and Supercell recently, like I've seen a few models of this now exist. So you got like one interesting model, of course, is the Supercell sort of like you have 
like a big brother sort of like borrowing you cash uh, where, where you sort of like close to that strategic uh, partner or investor. Then, then I've also seen like some venture funds uh, dabbling now with the credit uh, possibilities of, of loaning, loaning cash to, to publishers to, to developing uh, these publishing studios. And of course, like the final model is having that publisher who takes in this is sort of like the latest iteration of the mobile games publisher where you know they're they're providing the credit uh, but they're also giving you an, an assistance and allowing you to to understand uh how to publish mobile games like there's three models that i've, I've seen happening like what do you think <clears throat> about the the whole evolution there and how how do you think it's affecting the the ecosystem um, so I, I think it's all it's all positive, right? So we we started doing this. We made our first loans in 2015, and we have been uh, you know tirelessly tirelessly trying to kind of educate the market about the the use of debt financing as part of a capital mix. Uh, and it, it it's really pleasing to see. I mean, it's taken us uh, you know taken us a long time. We're taking the market a long time to kind of to 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 to, to wake up to it. But um, <clears throat> I'm just I'm just very pleased it's happening. So I mean, one one thing around you know venture funds providing credit um, is is interesting. We're actually partnering with um, with some venture funds at the moment who we are effectively providing a plug and play credit facility when an equity round is closed. Um, now for a VC fund directly um, to provide credit facilities all comes down to expected uh, risk and return, right? So if they're you know, if they've if they're trying to achieve sort of equity style returns and the, they're lending money at debt style um, uh, interest rates, uh, then that's going to impact their ability to make the equity return. So we think, you know, if you if you raise an equity fund going and then lending the equity fund where you're making a, you know, um, much lower returns on an IRR basis than you expect to from your equity portion is is is, is probably not that great a thing. You're probably better to partner with someone who's set up exclusively to provide debt facilities, and and that's just about risk and reward horizons and what you're promising investors. The other thing is then that you know from a the, the VCs are really sort of cottoning onto now is the fact that you know having a, a well structured debt facility alongside the equity component actually leverages their investment massively. So it allows the it allows the investee company to keep their money, the, the venture money in the bank, use it for IP creation at risk activities that are going to get the venture fund the the expected returns they're looking for, as opposed to tying up half their venture fund, tying up half their venture round in a user acquisition cycle that might may take you know 60, 90, 120 days to, to return. So it's really all about capital efficiency, using the right um, product for the right um Right, right financing product for the right activity and then measuring kind of risk and, and, and return horizons for each of those. Um, the, the other one you mentioned is, is publishers providing credit. And again, I think to me, this is just more of a more of a um, uh, just a delineation of the overall publishing model. Um, and you know, one of the things we see is you know, the, the sort of trend away from, you know, full on publishing to publishing services. So the studio can figure out, OK, what do we need? Um, what do we have and what do we need and how can we go and fill the gaps uh, in more of a kind of pick and mix style of activity so sometimes you see publishers providing credit lines which is you know which is fine and it's just a question of does that publisher want to actually then you know actually publish the title therefore receive the money and and it's their badge on the door um, do they allow the publisher to do they allow the developer to self-publish it but they they just lend them money um, I think really the devil's in the detail on, on all of this, and particularly when you have a publisher, as we've seen a few recently, 
they lend money, but they also do the user acquisition, but they recover the money and the, pub- the developer is at risk if the UA that the publisher is doing doesn't return. You know, and it's all good when the, uh, you know, when the, the good news stories are all out there, everyone's making money, everyone's happy. But I think you know, my advice to developers would be to consider the downside scenarios as well and to really, really understand the, the devil's in the detail in terms of these, um, these contracts and to really understand the risk associated with you know, what risk and return profile of, of, of what they're getting into. Yeah, makes sense. Like, do you think that the, the like, because like Supercell's case, they are not like a publisher. They've always been a first party developer who <clears throat> publishes their own games. But do you think that model uh, is sustainable for, for other bigger studios? Does it make financial sense? What do you think? Yeah, and to- totally right. The, the there was a lot of I, when I when I read the Supercell announcement, I thought this is this is you know this is genius. This is a super smart thing to do. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of confusion around what that announcement meant. There was a lot of kind of industry chatter about um, you know people in, in in my view kind of really getting the wrong end of the stick, thinking this was like some kind of term loan they were providing and it was going to kill the company, etc. And I, I actually did a did a LinkedIn post saying why we thought it was actually a, a super good. Um, uh, super good kind of uh, it's almost like a watershed moment for the industry it's like you know the big guys are doing this and it's a very very smart way to de- deploy capital so um, if you look at I mean this is this is just my understanding right so I don't have some inside track here but my understanding was that you know Supercell had made an investment into uh, into Metacore and they, they were looking to back up that uh, investment with a, a very very sizable credit facility so Supercell you know, the company is obviously very, very cash rich. And so they're looking at, you know, what to do with those massive cash reserves. Do they put them in, you know, the bank and earn virtually 0% as a return? Or can they deploy um, into into something that, that's going to make them a sensible yield on their cash reserves, but without, you know, deploying it into kind of like, you know, acquisitions or venture capital activities or anything else. Now, and again, this is, this is my read of the... Um, of uh, the, the the model and, and the problem they're looking at, and I think it's it's something that's really really misunderstood in the industry. So basically, the if you look at the at the genre, um, it seems that the um, that the ROAS is rec- on on merge games can be recovered fairly quickly, but obviously the long term LTV potential of these things is huge. That's why you know it seems to be almost like the new match three category where you've got um, you've got very very kind of long dated um, LTVs. Now, if you if you think about um, how long it takes to get there, so let's say you have a, you know, and this is away from kind of Metacore, but let's say theoretically you have something where you're going to break even in six months on your ad spend, and you're thinking about LTV on an 18 month, maybe even 24 month, because you're really good at kind of you know, projecting these things out and, and projecting user behavior over time. Um, if you have, let's say, a million dollar credit facility from Facebook or Google, um, you can you can spend that money and you'll need to pay the bill at the end of the next month. But, you know, you're not even breaking even on the ad spend for at least six months and you've probably got another one or two months for the cash to come out of the platforms on that basis. So what you're looking at doing is you're going to cap out the amount of money you can spend. Now, unless Facebook or Google is, provide, is able to re- provide you effectively an unlimited credit line, um, which they're, they're not, and frankly, is there, you know, it's not really their business because it's just a direct transfer of LTV risk from the developer onto the ad platform, and it's really not their business. So if you want to keep spending, uh, working on the basis that you're going to have a, an 18 or 24 month LTV return, it's very, very capital intensive to keep spending in the early days um, the amounts of money you want to spend. 
So what seems to have happened here is that the the, the, the medical guys have recognized this. They've, you know, I'm sure they're extremely good at projecting long dated LTVs and so on. And they've they've very smartly um, put a deal in place that is funding the user acquisition through debt as opposed to taking a huge mega round and uh, funding it through equity. So from a founder perspective, you know, able to have tremendous UA firepower, but without going and needlessly diluting yourselves um, using venture money. And it just comes down to the concepts of capital efficiency again, using the right financing product um, for the right risk profile of where the, the capital is going to be deployed. How do you think about like these like studios where the visibility isn't there uh, with like something that that has numbers in the early days? But like, how do you project like those twenty four months early on? What, have you seen any creative solutions for? That? Look, I, I I wish I had some kind of silver bullet answer, and the reality is you don't because there are so many different factors. Projecting, you know, projecting long dated retention and therefore LTVs is a very very risky business until you've got until you've got real evidence to support it hmm. what we've seen people do um very effectively is the more data they have the better they get at projecting it so typically you know you might have someone say i've got 90 days of data i'm going to be able to project a 90 day ltv but i'm not going to not going to make a wild assumption what that 180 day retention might be because i'll probably overestimate it and therefore i could really get you know over my skis so basically the more data you have the better you get at estimating it and the, the more confidence you have in making user acquisitions um, decisions financing decisions based on um uh, ba- based on that makes sense like let's talk about the, the the big mega rounds with vcs like that that have been happening how do you see like these rounds making sense for scaling these studios uh like <clears throat> where do you need that mega round for so I, I always smile when I see when I read in TechCrunch, it's like uh, you know X Studio has raised uh, Y amount of money for user acquisition to really scale this to the top of the charts, and they've done it through equity. Um, it just you know it, it just gives me a wry smile because I'm wondering. Uh, and look, you know the founders are smart, the VCs are smart, etc. But you just wonder whether that's necessarily the right capital allocation. So if you had you know a completely you know, binary view in terms of risk reward and <clears throat> you as a founder wanted to dilute yourself as little as possible, you wanted to use as much leverage as you can through credit facilities to spend your UA, reality is you'd probably raise a lot less equity. You'd dilute yourself a lot less, a lot less liquidity prefs for the VCs, etc. Now you look at this kind of more bullish stance and um, you look at some of these big mega rounds thinking, okay, we're going to go and raise tens or hundreds of millions, whatever the number is. And what you're basically saying, yeah, you've got a great product and you've got great metrics underneath it. And what you're basically saying is if anyone wants to come in and acquire our studio, we're putting a massive kind of defensive moat. So if you get one of the big acquirers and thinking, oh God, these guys have raised 50 or 100 or $150 million. If we're going to buy them, we're going to have to really pay up because they know how the game works. They know the VCs need to make the return. They need to the founders to make the return, et cetera, because they're going to, you know, they're going to lock them in on some kind of earnout, et cetera. So on that, on just in terms of value creation, you could say that's a really smart strategy. And provided the, the world continues to exist in a, in a kind of really frothy M&A market, bullish M&A market, then that might hold. The, the other way to look at it is that if that market, you know, ceases to be quite as kind of uh, bullish and frothy, and the acquirer is thinking, okay, we're going to return a little bit more to a kind of value-based approach uh, in terms of uh, of acquisitions. What you could find is that 
the companies have overraised, and if um, you know if they're going to be acquired, then again you look at us use a slightly more kind of glass half empty view of it. Then the um, the, uh, the 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 acquirers know what they need to do to in order to take care of the the VCs liquidity preference. But it's a much harder discussion because then you've got a you know, are you going to um, do exactly the same for the founders or do the founders have a, effectively a different deal where they get paid more on an earnout basis as opposed to getting some big payday up front? Mm-hmm. So advice to founders would be like, it's uh, j- just get good advice. Um, if you're able, you know, you're lucky enough to have one of these kind of mega rounds offered to you, whatever, then it could make perfect sense. If you are a little bit more prudent and you want to, you want to kind of slightly de-risk and raise what you need to, maybe more, maybe a bit more than you need to, whatever, uh, to achieve the same result, then that's also also good. I mean, it always makes a good headline um, when you raise a mega round. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of the uh, less fortunate situations are always kind of swept under the carpet and not reported. So I think it's just you know figure out your own personal risk appetite, uh, work with your investors, and just make sure you were making an informed decision about what sort of. Uh, you know, what sort of path you want to be going down. Yeah, I I think the, the whole business with the mega rounds is that the founders are, you know, going to be selling part of their own ownership so that they, they de-risk themselves and they can go for a much bigger return down the line, like bigger risks, uh, but but still like having, having sort of like de-risk themselves by selling a bit of their shares. And then, like, like the big thing that I'm, I'm sort of like missing is the studios getting into M and A more. Uh, I think like Scopely has been the the prime example of, of acquiring uh, companies and and building uh, a network of studios from being a first party pub, like self publishing entity uh, from the early days. So I I think both of those is, like trajectories are more interesting for the mega rounds, but like. I don't know if you've seen that happen really. Well, just, just a you know a consolidation. So, so if you if you layer that together with what we were talking about in terms of you know, the, the the publishing model changing, so you go from kind of first party to third party publisher, and a lot of people are are now thinking, well, hey, if I want to sell my business, I want to you know I want to um, I want to self publish because that's what's being acquired. Then you know yeah, if you if you're sitting on big cash reserves and you you, you yourself as a publisher have raised money, then um yeah you're you're getting to the same position through a different route if you like so then you start to acquire portfolios of ip um and then you're effectively smashing together um you know the studio with the wider publisher but you're aligning the economics better um because there's an outcome for the founders as opposed to you know you're on the you you're on the end of a revenue share without anything to sell so i think that's you know i think that's a fairly healthy direction for um for publishers to go in and if you can you know, if you can, you know, acquire the the talent and the intellectual property and the resources and do a fair deal for founders, um, then uh, yeah, absolutely, I think that's a you know like a like like a pretty valid strategy. Mm, makes sense. Hey, I wanted to talk about the the sort of like the questions that most of the the listeners here who are doing gaming studios, founding their own studios, like how do you see the current sort of understanding <clears throat> for financial? Uh, topics for for game developers like what are sort of like the things that the the studio founders should think about and where should they improve their understanding of this financial literacy right i mean look that that's one of the key things we're trying to do our our sort of you know our day-to-day business if you like is uh is um is lending capital 
um, to uh, to to game developers to help them with um, primarily with user acquisition. We do that through you know learning against receivables, but also learning against the the residual value that's trapped in the cohorts. Now, our kind of higher purpose, if you like, and the thing we're really investing a lot of time and effort into now is basically trying to raise this overall level of financial literacy among game developers such that they can make informed decisions about financing. When I talk about informed decisions, they, and we have we have hundreds and hundreds of conversations per year with, um, with developers, and it is... You know, the guys are by definition very smart people, right? They're able to to, to make fantastic games. The product knowledge and, and and game design, all these things, is fantastic. But there's there is a constant, um, you know, black spot, if you like, or blind spot in the mirror, which is around some of the financing techniques and so on um, that they use. And and we've seen people make kind of ill-informed decisions based on a lack of uh, a lack of knowledge. Now, what we're trying to do as a company is invest a lot of time and effort into providing um, resources um, to help people, A, better familiarize with themselves with some of the financial concepts and how, you know, different instruments, etc. Um, and, and we do that through, we have an initiative on our on our website called CFO Resources. And on that uh, page is a, a series of calculators. So we've got anything from, you know, helping you to uh, calculate your ROAS, your LTVs, um, modeling freemium economics and then overlaying financial scenarios on top of it so cash flow scenarios we also have another one which is um, uh, called the hyper casual velocity calculator and that shows you that helps you understand the impact of the payment terms of the ad networks on your ability to reinvest so you know given short ROAS break-even days we can show you how many times you could theoretically recycle the same dollar around the track within just one of the payment cycles of the ad network so the, the, there's a whole lot of, um, of resources in there we've got a whole lot of stuff planned um, and the, the reason really to do that is just to provide you know um, like a sandbox environment where people can, can play around with their own metrics and model different scenarios um, and then also just uh, also break down um, different sorts of costs and financing products so we have a um, you know, we're we're in the in the in the lending business. We pride ourselves on being like super transparent about um, about costs, um, about the 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 model, etc. And doing that just on a very simple interest rate basis, just as you would a bank overdraft or a credit card. You're paying for what you use. Unfortunately, there are um, there are a few different models in the market that uh, try to kind of obfuscate the true cost, the true lending costs. So sometimes you use a like a, a, a traditional kind of US factoring model where you quote a fixed fee. Now, you know, a fixed fee of, you know, let's say 3% against, um, you know, Google Play receivables that might be due in 15 days is totally different to a 3% uh, of Unity ads, which might be due in 90 days. Um, so when you break these things down to an interest rate, sometimes people are really shocked and a little bit embarrassed about what they're paying. So we have a, we have a debunker for that one. And the other one is these revenue-based loans super popular um, for e-commerce, for SaaS and so on. And it's great when you've got long dated, predictable revenue streams. So typically the model will work by saying, hey, I'll lend you $100,000 for UA. You pay me 10% of your revenues back every month until I've recouped you know, a 10% premium um, and then the loan's repaid. Now, if you've got really predictable, long dated SaaS subscription revenues or e-commerce revenues, whatever, and people like, you know, ClearBank and so on, they've been super successful in doing that for e-commerce. But we have some real reservations about whether that's an effective model for gaming, um, simply because the LTVs, particularly on premium, can be, you know, can be really short. So let's say 
for example, take an extreme example. I'm going to lend you $100,000 uh, on the basis that I recoup 10% of your revenues every month until I've been repaid at 110%. If we take all that money and we blow it on trying to scale a hyper-casual game and we've spent the money within a week, the, the expectation that that game is going to continue to deliver beyond 30 or 60 days is um you know is very unrealistic let alone six to ten months off the off one sprint of user acquisition spend so basically the ltvs for some of these games can be very very short and the propensity for both the lender to lose money but also for the um uh for the uh the, the developer to lose their business or lose their intellectual property is also really high so a lot of these loans will be advertised as unsecured but in reality you know, if you've gone sideways after two or three months of this, you're not able to repay the loan. The lender is still going to have recourse and, and, and will try and recover the money however they can. So we think the revenue based lending model is potentially dangerous for um, uh, for for um, studios as well as, to be honest, for lenders. Um, and there are there are better ways to um, to do that. So one of the things we have in CFO resources is, again, a calculator that will break down the costs of revenue-based loans back down to an interest rate. Um, you've got to wonder that, that unless you can understand something, you've got you know cash flow one, cash flow two, and some time in between. That can always be expressed as an interest rate. So uh, we believe completely in transparency in in sort of costs on an annualized basis, just like you would compare a credit card, you know, a bank term loan or a mortgage or anything else. You need to have a level playing field with which to compare different products. So this whole thing really feeds into making informed uh, financial decisions and just making sure I mean, it doesn't matter what you end up choosing. Um, and our mission here is to just make sure people go in really understanding what it is they're taking, what the implications are both on a finance and cost, and then also from a, a security and intellectual property. You know, what's going to the lending question is never what happens if everything goes well. It's always what happens if something goes sideways and, you know, to what level are you protected and, and is the financing choice you're making, is it aligned with uh, with your company if things don't go as well? Makes total sense. Thinking about like the the audience out there uh, who, who are approaching free to play for the first time or have that experience already from, from doing gaming, can they, can they actually operate without financial help? Uh, on their side, sort of like somebody's spending time on like being the, the interim CF, CFO uh, to understand all the paybacks, whatnot. How do you suggest they, they take up all that sort of work? It's uh, That's a really good question because, it, so and we've noticed it's been a bugbear for a while. We've, we've written some posts on it and stuff in the past. It's typically gaming companies won't appoint a, like a finance lead or a CFO until a way, way greater, a way later stage in the company's life cycle. So what you have, you might have the founders who are, you know, doing a lot of the kind of like heavy lifting with the game. And because they, you know, the UA is falling down to them, whatever, you might be doing a million dollars a month in revenue with spending five, six hundred K on user acquisition, whatever it might be. And it's still being done by the founders. And there's not, there's not really any, any kind of financial function. Now, find me a business in the traditional, the offline real world that's got a 10 to 15 million dollar run rate who doesn't have a finance lead. Right. And it's one of these things that gets sort of overlooked until and until sort of way later. And we've seen this time and time again with mobile gaming studios. So, again, you know, when she, I mean, you should really be thinking about it right from the start. And there are some there's some good resources. We're going to have a lot more stuff going up on CFO resources that helps people trying to figure out 
some of the early stuff um, around how to, you know, how to plan, how to model. Um, but also there are some great, you know, there's some great accounting firms. You know, we know some in Finland, we know some in the UK, they're all over. There are typically kind of niche practitioners who who kind of can help uh, at an early stage. This isn't a full-on CFO role. This is just like helping them do the kind of basic bookkeeping hygiene that they know. And then, you know, again, modeling stuff like user acquisition economics, that, that's that's one of the things that, that I think we can be helpful with as a as a company in a completely kind of non-intrusive, non-invasive way. So we're not asking you to you know, connect things up to pollen or whatever. We'll just provide a sandbox environment to help you figure these things out. Now, if it happens that we're a good financing fit for you later down the line, that's fantastic. And if we've been some help early on, then great. But um, we we believe in sort of paying it forward with um, with tools and resources and you know, generally just kind of being helpful. We have some studios that we've been talking to for over two years that the fit is just not right. So we check in every few months, whatever, and then all of a sudden we get the call, as we had had one last week. These guys have been trying for oh, probably two and a half years to get the UA metrics right, and all of a sudden it works, uh, and then we get the call. And all we've done is we've tried to be kind of like helpful and supportive over the time, but never trying to sort of you know push a financing deal if we don't think it's the right um, fit for the company. So sometimes it's a it's a long slow burn. UA is a, a a fickle business, but when you get your UA economics you know facing the right way, then um, that's when you it, it opens up some different kind of financing options to you. I got some final questions for you, Martin. These are the ones that I always want to ask all the guests. So, like, do you have a book that you recommend or that's a favorite uh, book of yours? Yes, but it's nothing to do with some some kind of uh, hardcore business or uh, or anything else. Um, Kitchen Confidential by the late Anthony Bourdain, I thought was awesome. Really nice. stuck out. Nice. Do you have a story you could share uh, that has shaped your work today? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I have a million. I just I just need to think what what one is uh, is um, is right for the audience. Well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll tell you this one, which is. Um, so I, I just came back. Uh, we were living in California for four years. We have a team in San, just outside San Francisco and a team in London. And in 2016, we um, we uh, moved out to uh, to California with our three kids and, and and had a great four years. And it was only actually in the middle of the pandemic last summer we decided to um, to come back. Now, one of the great things I learned about about a stint living in California, which I think will you know has rubbed off on me and will will change my thinking for. Um, for the rest of uh, rest of my life is basically the sort of the inimitable Californian positivity, right? So the way that um, you know traditionally Brits would always uh, you know come up with an idea and Brits would tell you ten reasons why it won't work and um, and be sort of uh, you know um, first to point out that they were the ones I told you so if it uh, if it didn't. Whereas the Californians would be like ten, you know, you come up with an idea, they'll find ten reasons why it will work, and you know what can we do to help? So. The, part, partly it's that and then part of the things and you know like every um uh, like, like every business you have your kind of twists and turns and personal twists and turns along the way one of the things i learned from that is basically everything everything bad that happens to you or your business try to find a positive outcome from that try to try to find a way to steer it around to a positive outcome as opposed to just a negative one so something bad might have happened you get knocked off your horse whatever what can you take from that and roll it back into either your personal or professional or both life to try and find something positive from it? 
And that was something I got just from, uh, I don't know, something in the water or the air or whatever in California that really kind of stuck with me. And, you know, we had four great years there. We obviously didn't live there anymore. Um, but I don't think that sort of uh, that mindset will ever will ever leave me. And hopefully we've instilled that in our kids as well to always try and find the positive when bad stuff happens to you. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, as the final question, Martin, what's the best way to for a gaming studio people to, to reach out to you if they want to? talk about the, the resources that you have yeah look to, to talk about I mean, so, so first of all use the use the um uh, the resources available on our cfo resources page at pollen.vc um and also uh the you know if, if anyone wants to reach out directly um to me or i can put them in touch with one of our team but you know you use me as the uh, uh as the filter I, I you know so my email address is martin at pollen.vc um and you know maybe me that can help and maybe one of the team um, <clears throat> depending on where, where people are located. But um, one of the things that I really like as a founder is, um, you know, the direct access um, to people. So I don't I don't sort of like, you know, hide. I, I want to have the conversation. So, I, you know, if someone reaches out on our website via Intercom, it may well be me that sort of, that, that fields it as opposed to one of our BD team or anything else. Because I, I just like having those conversations um, early. We've spoken to, you know, and funded like hundreds of people over the years. We've seen a lot of stuff and, Hopefully we can add a add a lot of value, but I like to be um, I like to be kind of close to the action as well. Nice, that's perfect. Hey Martin, this was so much fun, uh, so enlightening, and uh, always good to chat with you. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of the summer, and I'll see you soon. Great stuff. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please do go and check out our weekly newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. It's going to go out on Friday mornings where I share all the interest areas for myself in gaming startups. So check it out and I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.